Our reading today comes from Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 13 from the, new, or from the Passion Translation. This is the beginning of the wonderful news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It starts with Isaiah the prophet, who wrote, Listen, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a thunderous voice of one who shouts in the wilderness. Prepare your hearts for the coming of the Lord Yahweh, and clear a straight path inside your hearts for him. John the baptizer was the messenger who appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the complete cancellation of sins, a steady stream of people who came to be dipped in the Jordan River as they publicly confessed their sins. They came from all over southern Israel, including nearly all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. John wore a rough garment made of camel hair with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. And this is the message he kept preaching. There's a man coming after me who is greater and a lot more powerful than I am. I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie the strap on his sandals. I've baptized you into water, but he will baptize you into the spirit of holiness. One day, Jesus came from the Galilean village of Nazareth and had John immerse him in the Jordan River. The moment Jesus rose up out of the water, John saw the heavenly realm split open and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. At the same time, a voice from heaven spoke saying, you are my son, my cherished one, and my greatest delight is in you. Immediately after this, he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go into an uninhabited desert region. He remained there in the wilderness for 40 days enduring the ordeals of Satan's tests. All right, familiar passage for some of us. What do you think when you hear this read this morning, when you heard this read this morning? Yes. Uh, so reading at this time, or hearing at this time, is the first time I realized that the whole of Jerusalem went to go be baptized by John. Like how popular was baptism, and then how threatening that is for the whole Jewish leadership for John and then Jesus to come after him and want to be baptized like that. I didn't you couldn't that. have asked a better question, because this is where second, second Temple Judaism comes in. I love it. Thank you. Who else? All right, you set me up well. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, who else? Oh, yeah. You get stars today, both of you. <laughs> so over the past couple and two and a half years, I've been studying this concept called Second Temple Judaism. Never heard of it before, never thought about it before. In my evangelical spaces, it was something that we just didn't talk about. We talked about it a little bit at school in, when I was in school, and, but not to this degree. It is an absolutely revelatory way to look at the, the New Testament for me, and I hope it will be for you. So our word for 2024 is sanctuary. So in all that we do in this year, uh, the formation team 
and I want to be sure that we keep the idea of sanctuary front and center. And that even in understanding and interpreting uh, a gospel message through a different kind of lens than we're used to, that even yet in that we can find sanctuary. So this second temple Judaism, and I'm going to go through it a little bit, and this the first part of this sermon is going to be heavy on information. And you've got a timeline. I hate to do an informational sermon because it doesn't feel very inspiring, but I promise you there's a point to it. We'll get there. So for the rest of the year, we have different sermon series coming up, but Second Temple Judaism will be the thing that threads it all together. So we're going to see the Gospels, the New Testament in a different kind of way, and I'm really excited for you to go through this game with me, go through this uh, idea with me. So I'm going to ask you to take notes. If you want to, ask me questions later. Send me an email. Send me a Facebook message if I said something or glossed over something that you didn't quite understand because I really want us to grasp this. So Matthias Henze says, the world of the Old Testament cannot explain the world that Jesus lived in. Now I want you to hear that again because we've been taught differently, right? We've been taught that the Old Testament informs us about the world that Jesus lived in and that is not true. Where in the Old Testament do we see baptism? We don't. Where did that come from? Why were all the people, all the Jews lining up to be baptized? They weren't being told to be baptized in the Old Testament, so it came from somewhere, right? And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. Now, I went back through my sermon notes. I was talking to my husband about this during the week. In January of 2022, I first introduced this idea to you as a broad brush, and I wasn't able to get into a lot of it. Like I said, it's taken me two and a half years to get a handle on it, and I still don't really have a handle on it. I certainly wasn't able to teach on it two years ago, and I don't even know that I'm able to teach on it today, but we're going to try. But Terry said, my husband said, I really didn't understand what you were trying to say or do in that sermon. I was like, okay, well, good. Then we're going to slow down a little bit and hopefully have a better idea of what this means. So a lot of us have been taught that between Malachi, the last uh, book in the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first, the gospel, in between, there's about 400 years. And a lot of us have been taught that those were years of silence, darkness. God stopped speaking. There were no prophets. God just was quiet. And that is not true. That is absolutely not true. A lot of us did not have the opportunity to, to study Apocrypha, those extra books of the Bible. There was speaking going on. There was working going on. God still had God's hand on everything and was moving things, and God was not quiet. So I want to start with some slides that's going to kick us off. So before I talk about this, I just for a refresh, okay? When the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, God told them to build him a tabernacle. And it was a huge tent that could move where they went. Wherever they went, the tent got packed up and moved with them. So God was with them wherever they went. The tabernacle, that was the thing that represented the presence of God for them. So David comes along, King David, and he says, I want to build a permanent structure for you. You deserve it, God. You're the greatest. You're all these things. I'm going to build this for you. And God says, nope, not you, but I'm going to let your son do it. 
So King Solomon builds this first sanctuary. So this is first temple Judaism. First temple Judaism. And it was built around 1000 BCE. That uh, clip there on the left is from uh, the Smithsonian, I believe. This was their imaginings of what it would have looked like back then. If you can go to the next slide. Now, for them, this temple, this, 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 even the tabernacle, the tabernacle and even the temple, those were sanctuary for the Israelites. That was their soft place to land because God was there. They didn't think of God as inside of them. They didn't think of God going with them wherever they went. God was there. So this was their sanctuary. But this first temple, sorry, the first temple is destroyed in 586 BCE. So King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon captured the rest of the Jewish people in the southern kingdom of Judah. He destroyed everything in Jerusalem, including the first temple. So in 586 BCE, which is before Common Era, um, the first temple is destroyed and the diaspora begins. So we we tend to think of Israel as this nation. It was not a nation. It was the land of Palestine, but the Israelites lived there. Does that make sense? I don't know that I understood that a while back. So the tribes, the northern tribes, there were ten northern tribes in the land of Palestine. They had already been dispersed. They were long gone. All that was left of Israelites was the southern part of Judah. And then they were dispersed in 586 BCE. So they're, they're everywhere now, and they... Do not, they're not in their land that the Lord promised to them. They are out here somewhere. Okay, slide three. In 538 BCE, the Persians conquered Babylon, and King Cyrus allowed the Israelites to return home if they wanted to. He also sent money to help rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. This is the story we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. So the second temple is completed around 518 BCE. So it took them about 20 years to rebuild the second temple. Are you with me so far? Okay. We go to the next. Before you go to the next slide, let me just say this real quick about this King Cyrus, because we hear a lot about King Cyrus in the news and our politics, right, for the past few years. If you want to know... If you want to have a conversation with me about King Cyrus after service, I would love to. I love that kind of conversation, but we're, we won't go there today. So the second temple is completed around 518 B.C. Next slide. Now we are in second temple Judaism. Notice we are about 500 years away from the birth of Jesus. That's not that long considering, Right? So these are some of the things in Second Temple Judaism that we get new terminology that's not found in early Jewish, Jewish scriptures. Synagogue. Jews. They're called Israelites in the Old Testament. But all of a sudden in this period they're known as Jews. Pharisees, Sadducees, the Samaritans, a rabbi, baptism, monotheism. Contrary to probably what you and I have been told, First Temple Judaism people, First Temple First Temple Israelites probably were not monotheist. And there's evidence of that archaeologically. But this Second Temple group, did I just blow your mind with that? Because haven't we always been taught they were always monotheistic and they were not? 
There's really no proof of that. Sorry. To, I mean, it upset me too, so you get to be upset with me. But during this time, they did become <clears throat> more monotheistic. Uh, an eschological messiah, Herodians, uh, an afterlife. First Temple Israelites did not believe there was an afterlife. They didn't believe in a heaven or a hell. They believed you went to sleep, and that was it. A high priest, the kingdom of God, and the Essenes. And there's some other things, but those are kind of the main ones. And obviously today we're going to talk about baptism. So the story of God evolves, right? The story of God changes. We get new aspects of God along the way because God is not stagnant. Hebrews 4, uh, let me just say this. When you see a bumper sticker that says, God's word settled it, I said it, I believe it, that settles it. That is not true. It's not. Because God is always on the move and doing new things. Hebrews 4.12 says, God's word is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word is energy. It is full of energy. The words are alive and they are evolving. So if you'll go to slide five. Great. I love that for me. Okay. <laughs> Told you. There's no polish up here. My feet are just as clay as yours. Okay. This brief timeline of a Bible, and I hate like everything that I don't have a bigger board to write on, but I, we'll, we'll walk through it slowly so everybody gets their blanks filled. Now, I'm going to ask you, once you fill this out, to keep it with you and bring it with you for the next three Sundays for sure, because this is exactly where we're going to work from. And keep it throughout the year. My notifications just told me to get up. Anyway. <laughs> because we will reference this throughout the year, okay? So, the biblical, the brief timeline of the Bible is we have the Torah... And it goes in the first line. This says Old Testament, Second Temple period. Okay? So in that first line that you have, it's the Torah. And those are the first five books in the Old Testament scriptures. They were written around the 5th to 4th century BCE. You can jot that down if you want to. I'm sorry? The Torah. Oh, I'm sorry. The 5th and 4th century BCE. Yes. Thank you. On this line right here on your timeline, and if, I, if I'm confusing you where you are, because I don't have your timeline in front of me, okay? I have notes, but anyway. Yeah, I do actually. Never mind. Okay, so this first line on the left is Haggai. It's one of the prophets, and it was written, and it's H-A-G-G-A-I. And it was written around 525 BCE. 525 BCE. Isaiah 56 through, 56 through 66 is after 515 BCE. Notice that's not all of Isaiah. Isaiah is written in parts over centuries. Malachi is next. 
And it's written around the 5th century BCE. Are you with me so far? There's a song that says that, right? It's an eagle song. Never mind. Okay. The next line is Ezra, Nehemiah. Written around 4th century BCE. 4th century BCE. First, second Chronicles was written in fourth century BCE. Fourth century BCE, first and second Chronicles. And then Esther was written around fourth century BCE. See, we're getting closer to the time of Jesus. Now, on this side of your timeline has the New Testament. And I want you to notice this for one reason. Under the New Testament, we have Paul and what he wrote. He, he wrote in the, in the decade of the 50s, maybe the early 60s of CE, Common Era. But the Gospels were not written until 70 and up, Common Era. I want you to think about that. Paul wrote first about Jesus. Then the Gospels get written. So you're looking at, with the Gospels, you're looking at 40-some-odd years of Jesus' death until the Gospels were written. And Mark was the very first Gospel to be written. And it is believed that Matthew and uh, Luke draw from Mark. But Mark is the oldest Gospel. It's the earliest Gospel. So that's helpful to know. Now under here, you have a timeline at 539 B.C.E., that's the Persian period, so you can just write Persia. Under 332 BCE is the Hellenistic. Hellenistic. 164 BCE is the Maccabean, and it's M-A-C-C-A-B-B-E-A-N. M-A-C-C-A-B-B-E-A-N. A-E-A-N. And then the Roman period. And the temple is destroyed. The second temple is destroyed in 70 CE. Now just hold on to that. And hopefully this will make sense as we move along. Say that again. Say that again. Oh. Cheat away. It's okay. So, so, so the second temple was destroyed in 70 CE, 70 Common Era. So between this time of around 518 BCE to 70 CE is Second Temple Judaism. And this is where we find where these ideas and uh, thoughts were developed of a rabbi, of a synagogue, of baptism. So John the baptizer, 
was the messenger who appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the complete cancellations of sins. Now, before Second Temple, the liturgical or public use of water was common in the Jewish world for ritual impurities. The law of Moses required ablutions on the part of priests following certain sacrifices and on certain individuals who were unclean because of an infectious disease or genital discharge. The use of water for cleansing was used symbolically in the people of first temple, actually the tabernacle. This is the first temple's not even created then. So in Exodus, we hear where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities. So there's a difference between tabernacle Judaism and second temple Judaism because they believed in water. They believed washing of water, but because you were impure, you had an infectious disease, you had an impurity of such. It wasn't for the cancellation of sin. It didn't need to be because they had what? They had the temple where they sacrificed. That was where their sins got forgiven. It was not in the water. It was through the sacrifice of animals. So, toward the beginning of the Christian era, before the beginning, toward the beginning of 1 CE, common era, the Jews adopted a custom that God did not tell them to do. There's no record that God told them to do this. Like the ritual impurities that they claim, God told them to do these things. But all of a sudden, as we get closer to the end of that, to, to, to 1 CE, the, the Jews adopt another custom. And it was unrelated to, to divine guidance, just meaning God didn't tell them to do this. This is something they thought was good. And it was the custom of baptizing people seven days after their circumcision. But there was also, uh, they, they would do these, they would have these specific interrogations uh, to make it possible to judge the real intentions of the candidate, of, the person who, of a person who wanted to adopt the Jewish religion. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to be a Jewish person, you were adopted in this particular time, in just this specific window of history. So um, they were, they would, the, the Gentile would be circumcised and then they would be baptized into the Jewish religion. He was, the person was immersed naked in a pool of flowing water. And when he rose from the pool, he was a true son of Israel. And after their baptism, baptism, new converts were allowed access to the temples, to the sacrifices in the temple. They were considered a Jew. According to the Jews in time of Jesus by Stephen Weiland, ritual purity washing became an outward sign of piety in the first century. It was being morally correct, and it was a widespread belief. Their ritual purity washing was public and it was an outside sign, outward sign of their piety. It made them morally correct. We do this too. We look a certain way. We dress a certain way. We talk a certain way. We act a certain way to convey to people, I'm good. I'm pious especially for those of us that know a more fundamentalist style of evangelism. You don't listen to certain music. You don't watch certain movies. You don't read Harry Potter. 
This is something we've been doing since the beginning of time. Something that shows on the outside to say, I'm pious. I'm better than you. I'm God. I, God likes me. Probably didn't like you because you listened to Def Leppard. <laughs> right? Am I the only one in the room that did that? I mean, I did that. Did anybody else, anybody want to fess up to that? I did it. I did it. Okay? Say that. Good. Good. I was always told when I was in high school is we don't drink, we don't swear, we don't smoke, and we don't, want, we don't go out with girls who do. Right? I think that we have focused way too hard on what we look like with what we say, how we say it, and we're just full of, I'm not going to say it, there's too many people in here. <laughs> we're full of poopy, okay? We just really are. We focus way too hard on what we look like. One of the reasons that I don't pray publicly over meals in a restaurant, some of you have been out with me before for a meal, and I, and I get that you're a little uncomfortable. Some of you are a little uncomfortable, like is she, she's going to pray over a meal, right? She's a pastor. She's going to pray, and I don't. I just start eating. And I, the reason that I don't is I have spent a lifetime around people who did that, who were pieces of poopy behind the scenes, right? Haven't you? Haven't you that were just terrible? I mean, I've done that. I've been around pastors that did that, and then I turn around in 15 minutes, they're talking to me like I'm a piece of dirt. And I just have, when you do it, I think that's great, and I pray with you. I'll pray with you. But I don't do it for those reasons. Maybe it's a trigger of some sort. I don't know. But I would just rather be like, hey, thanks God for the food. I grew up in a tradition where, you know, we would pray, like, thank you thou for our food thou, and yeah. And they were not good people. And yeah, I'm judging. I can, because you don't know them. And I do. <laughs> I've done it too. I've prayed publicly over meals and turned around and been a horrible human being myself. But my heavens, I looked pious. Because I prayed over our salad at McAllister's. <laughs> at some point, some Jews began to see baptism with a higher spiritual significance than just ritual purity. Stephen Wyland says, It represented a state of nearness to God as if one were actually present in the temple. They believed that sin generated distance from God and washing away those impurities restored them to God. To this day, Gentiles who would embrace Judaism must undergo baptism in a mikvah ritual. The purpose of this ceremonial immersion is to portray spiritual cleansing. So one day Jesus comes from the Galilean village of Nazareth and had John immerse him in the Jordan River the moment Jesus rose up out of the water, John saw the heavenly realm split open and the Holy Spirit descended upon, descended upon him like a dove. At the same time, a voice spoke from heaven saying, You are my son, my cherished one, and my greatest delight is in you. 
Nadia Boltz Weber said this a couple of weeks ago. She said, without Jesus doing a thing, Jesus has not performed a miracle. Jesus has not prayed over a meal. No, I'm just kidding. He probably did. Jesus hasn't done anything other than just exist. Jesus hasn't done anything other than just be alive and present on the planet Earth. Before he did anything, God said, I'm proud of you. You are approved of. You have my blessing. Whether you ever serve in the nursery or not, whether you ever work in the sound booth or not, whether you ever teach or not, I really do approve of you. Jesus' worth was inherent before he lifted a finger to do one thing. I needed to hear that. We are loved and accepted by God just by breathing. So my original question still stands. Why baptism? John the Baptist tells, it, tells us it's for the cancellation of our sins and a sign of repentance. So what does that mean? Well, since you're here and you're listening to me already, I'll give you my interpretation. And it's my interpretation only. There will be people in this room that will see it differently, and that's okay. That's who we are. I believe that baptism is symbolically being buried and raised with Christ. We are identifying with Christ's death and resurrection. Just as Christ was crucified, died, buried, and then rose from the grave, we choose to ascend to this truth. We choose to believe that this is what Christ did, so I will do it too. But we are baptized into a new way of seeing the world. We are baptized in also making the choice to live in this life, as long as we breathe, to walk in the way of the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I didn't get kingdom of God when I was that person either. I thought it was up here. And that's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was saying, I'm going to show you a new way to walk and be and breathe in this world. Follow the way I'm doing things. Because the kingdom of God needs to be on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he was saying. We are baptized, saying that the way we think, talk, and live will be in pursuit of ensure, ensuring that God's kingdom, the narrow way, will be made known in this world. John Dominic Crossan said, think about it like this. Rome had officially, publicly, and legally executed Jesus, but God had raised him from the dead. Jesus was therefore dead to Rome and alive to God. Jesus was dead to Rome and alive to God. Y'all, I can get pulled in some things that involve Rome in a heartbeat, and there are things going on in Rome that we need to pay attention to. I get it. There's things that are wrong that we need to speak out about. But that's not our entire identity. That's just not it. In baptism, the followers of Jesus had died to the basic values of Rome's empire and had been reborn to those of the, can of the kingdom. That changes the way we vote. That changes the way we see the world. That changes the way we um, campaign for a chosen candidate. It changes the way we see the world. But it doesn't mean that that's our identity. We are not baptized as an outward sign of inner purity. That ain't it. 
That ain't it. Listen to your Def Leppard. They got some good stuff. <laughs> but we are also not baptized into a way of life that consciously harms other people, especially those who are marginalized and different from us, oppressed. We are not baptized into a way of life that chooses selfish motives over the better good of others. We are not baptized into a life that forces our belief systems onto others, whether our neighbors, families, or government. We are not baptized into a way of life that is critical and judgmental of others' decisions about their way of life that we think is wrong or will send them to hell. You know, the Pope got into trouble this week. He said, I hope hell is empty. I do too. We are baptized into a way of life that is unselfish and does not push our way around. We are baptized into a way of life that seeks to be kind, hospitable, guileless, selfless, and faithful. We are baptized into a way of life that helps others and even helps overturn systems that oppress them. We are baptized into a way of life that shares the good news with everyone that God is crazy about them. I was, I was taught to believe that I was to tell people about God because God didn't like them so much and because of their sin they were going to hell. That wasn't the point. That was not the point. The good news is not that. The good news is that God loves us. They need to know that they are God's beloved and made in the image of God and have been called good and pleased with. I'm pleased with you by the same God and that they are the apple of their creator's eye. My friend Rob Collins, pastor of First Baptist Peoria, says... He has a sign in his office that he's had for years. He had it when we, he and I were together in Huntsville. It's right on the front of his desk, and it just says, Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. We make a choice to be baptized into this way of life, but we forget it so easily. I know I do. Nadia Boltz Weber shares this story. She's a recovering um, addict. She says... I was in a 12-step meeting the other day, and one of the old guys, a guy who has been sober for like 45 years, said something so simple and so casual, but something that made me shake my head and wonder what it would be like if we really all believed it. As we were all discussing what our higher power is, what the God of our understanding is like, he said, I don't know about you, but my God is crazy about me. I couldn't stop thinking about it. For most of my life, I've heard the saying, God loves you. But it always feels more than an empty slogan, like, don't worry, be happy, or something. For, something someone, for someone to say, Nadia, God loves you, feels almost compulsory. Like God loves me, kind of, because he has to, since I'm one of his kids. But to say my God is crazy about me? I don't know, that's different. That feels like the kind of pure gospel love the heavens could not contain. And it just kind of has to spill out over everything. A love that is yours quite apart from what you do or don't do. The kind of love that breaks your heart and then makes it bigger. A love that creates belovedness in the one it rests upon. And finally, finally, if you've never been baptized and you would like to be, because you want to be a part of this 
establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You want to be a part of being something bigger. See me. Let's talk. Let's get you baptized. Because here's the thing. You already belong to God. You are already loved. You're already approved. You've already been approved. God is proud of you. Never underestimate the power of telling someone you're proud of them. Never. I, it's not something I grew up with. My dear pastor and mentor back home in Huntsville, every time he talks to me at the end of the conversations, he says, I'm so proud of you. It gets me every time. Tell people you're proud of them. It may be weird, but that's okay. Tell them anyway. There's holiness in those words. I'm proud of you. You're doing a good job. Way to go. If you will, stand at this time and we will recite an affirmation of faith together. Through our baptism, God has proclaimed us as God's beloved and God is well pleased with us. Whether it was as an infant, a youth, or an adult, whether our baptism happened in a church, or if we can't even remember, or in a river at summer camp, or in a church we love, or one that no longer allows us to take communion, our baptism, no matter the circumstance, was not an act of faith that we or someone else was giving to God. Our baptism was most certainly an act of God upon you. We share in the story of God's mighty acts of salvation and receive new birth through water and the Spirit. These are the gifts of God, offered freely to all. Let us renew the covenant declared at our baptism, acknowledging what God is doing in, through, and for us, and affirming our commitment to love as Jesus loved.